It's 12.07. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric Bilstead, interesting day around Radio yeah. City here, huh? Yeah. A lot of energy. I like it. It, it, it is energy. And, and this is a, a very, very interesting day. Let, let me kind of review the bidding for a minute, because, Eric, I know you, you've worked here for a long time mm-hmm. as well. You've been here 19 years? Yeah. All right. Believe it or not. Got, well, I mean, when, when you and I then started... Uh, WTMJ, which originally the call letter stood for the Milwaukee Journal, WTMJ was a privately held company, and it was journal communications. And you had the, the newspaper, which was one part of it, and then you had the television and radio side of it. And journal communications owned a series of TV stations across the country and a series of radio stations across the country. Uh, WTMJ, the heritage radio station, probably the, the sort of crown jewel, I would say, in, in, in the radio event. So it, we were we were a privately held company for, for a while. In the early 2000s, they made the decision to, for a variety of reasons, to, to go public. Yep. People could invest and buy stock and things like that. And the company continued for a number of years. And then about three years ago, journal communications kind of split off. And, and the newspapers were sold and now are owned by Gannett, USA Today. And the TV and radio properties were sold to Scripps Broadcasting out of Cincinnati. And Scripps Broadcasting was, by and large, it's a TV company. They right. own TV yeah. properties all over the country. They had been in radio a number of years ago, but had gotten out of radio. So when the properties were sold, our radio group came over it intact, but it was the only, it was the only rate part of, of radio that, that they, they owned. And so for the last several years, now I have thoroughly in, enjoyed working for Scripps. Yeah, I think Scripps, Scripps, great Scripps has been a great company. The benefits were super, all that sort of stuff, but, but they're a TV company and radio was always kind of the, and I say this with affection, but I, my, my sense was the radio properties were always at Thanksgiving dinner. We were kind of the kids' table, right? <laughs> Is that unfair? No, I think it's accurate. You know, and, and again, it's, it's not a knock at all. No, it, it, no. It, was, it was just a great situation, but that's always been kind of how the, the dynamic was. And then about a year ago or so, Scripps made the decision that they were going to divest themselves of the radio properties. And our, our boss... Um, Steve Wexler, who's been a big fixture around here for the last, well, since I since I've been here twenty plus years, that that's been kind of Steve's mission was trying to sell off the radio properties to, to good buyers, and uh, that that's pretty much been accomplished. But one of the interesting things is w- where WTMJ ended up, mm-hmm. and that is, of course, with Good Karma Brands. And uh, a new new purchaser, and we are now officially Good Karma as of today. Yeah, yeah, it's an exciting, different time in the world of radio in Milwaukee. It's pretty cool, and we're we're both excited about that. But we are joined now by the CEO of Good Karma Brands, Craig Karmazin. By the way, as we do for our first segment of the program all the time, we we live stream this Facebook Live slash six twenty WTMJ, so you can see both Mr. Karmazin and myself in the studio. Craig, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jeff. <laughs> but it's your radio station. I, you know, whatever. For, for people who don't know, Craig, you're you're a fixture in the Milwaukee area. But for people who don't know your background in this industry, I, I think it's fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I uh, started as an intern at uh, WIP Sports Radio in Philadelphia. I was a sports fan growing up in New Jersey who. Just wanted to work in sports. And my dad was in radio. And, you know, I 
convinced him that, hey, if I get good grades in college, can I get an internship at your radio station? And he worked in radio, and he said yes. And so I got the grades I needed to, and I was so excited to go to New York to work at WFAN, the biggest sports radio station in the world, and be an intern there. And he, uh, you know, as it was coming up on the first day, I said, so are we going to drive to work together? How is it going to work? He said, you're not coming to New York. You're working in Philadelphia. <laughs> He's like, I don't want you in the same city as me. So um, I uh, got to commute down an hour and a half every day to Philadelphia to my internship and, you know, fell in love with the business while I was there. Before that, I was a sports fan. So I just wanted to be around sports and sports talk. But I found myself reading the trades and really becoming passionate about the industry. And when I graduated school, I was already halfway to starting Good Karma. I had had a trip to Madison, Wisconsin in uh, October of 1996, which was my senior year of college, and was with a bunch of friends from high school and friends from grade school. And we just fell in love with Madison. And I, you understand Madison's a pretty good place to recruit to. Sure. <laughs> and, and so we left that weekend, that October 1996 weekend, saying, hey, we graduate in May. We should start a radio station here. We could host and we could sell and we could do the whole thing together. And unfortunately, from the time we left on Sunday morning to when I got back to school on Monday, all my other friends said, oh, we were kidding about that, right? <laughs> they sobered up, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. right, got it. Okay. Everybody, everybody else sobered up. So I, though, went, found out there was an entrepreneurship department at my school and said, hey, I'm starting a sports radio station in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm putting Howard Stern on the radio in Madison, Wisconsin. How do I get credit for that? And so I spent the next nine months working on that. And while I did that, I found a, a great internship in Atlanta at a sports radio station there. And um, by August of 1997, you know, seven, eight months later, I found radio stations in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. And the reality was I couldn't afford a radio station in Madison, Wisconsin. Right. And was able to make something work in Beaver Dam because there were these highly successful radio stations there. So a month after my 22nd birthday, I moved to Beaver Dam, Wisconsin to become the general manager and owner of uh, three radio stations in Beaver Dam. Uh, that Good Karma still owns. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So our, our Beaver Dam stations, are, you know, until today uh, was our only other news talk station that we had in the company. So. We'd be at the Wisconsin Broadcasters Awards. We'd be winning 10, 11 trophies in the small market radio, you know, with our WBEV news team. And we'd be looking up at WTMJ at the major market and being like, gosh, we just want to be the Beaver Dam version of WTMJ. Right. Now, from, from the Beaver Dam acquisition, you, you've really been able to develop a, a niche and a, and a brand with ESPN stations. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, by 2002, we had grown as small market Wisconsin radio operators, but technology was changing so much. And I was scared. You know, I was 27 years old and thinking about what's the next 40 years of good karma going to look like? And the idea of having a bunch of music stations in small towns, I, I was just worried about that with satellite radio coming and internet radio and all these different things. And I really thought if you could find products that couldn't be duplicated, and I thought sports was a natural because we were already doing it pretty well. So I really thought if you could have that credibility of the big brand with ESPN, but find markets where you could connect locally 
with fans and the business community that could really work. So in 2003, we launched ESPN West Palm. In 2004, ESPN Milwaukee. In 2006, ESPN Cleveland. In 2008, ESPN Madison. And that really drove our growth for almost a decade, was refocusing away from just radio to specifically being ESPN in these markets. Now, a lot of people might say, Craig, Radio, it, it, it's it's 1930s. You know, we're we're moving into you know the the 2020s. But what, what what are you doing with radio? I mean, my gosh, you've got digital. There's TV. There's all these platforms. Isn't radio a hundred years old? It is, and uh, radio is still a, an amazing amazing mechanism to distribute the content that a lot of people are listening to us on. But also, a lot of people are listening to us on an appliance in their home right now. You know, on their smart speaker. Or people are listening to us on their app. Or people are listening to us on their desktop or their smartphone. And so for me, the heritage is what we were buying right here. The heritage. It's, you know, the biggest stick in the state is awesome. That's great. And a lot of people still consume WTMJ on 620 AM. But a lot of people also consume it on 103.3 FM. And a lot of people consume it in other ways. And the relationships, the brands, the people, that is what's more valuable today than ever. You know, Netflix is spending $10 billion with a B on content each year. And we're just in the content business, but we have the advantage. Here we are locally owned here in Milwaukee producing content in news, in sports, in weather, in traffic, things that are now, things that are current, things that nobody else can do the way our team can do them. I've sort of buried the lead, Craig, because obviously, as you know, listeners are very invested in this station and our sister FM station. Can you stick with me through the break? Let me make you a little bit of money, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the future. I'm always good uh, pausing uh, to hear from our great partners. <laughs> good enough. It's 1217. Jeff Wagner joined by the CEO of Good Karma Brands, Craig Karmazin. Stick around. It's 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We're joined by the CEO of Good Karma Brands, Craig Karmazin. Uh, Good Karma Brands just completed the purchase of WTMJ and 94.5, now ESPN Radio. Craig, let me talk a little bit about that. We announced this last week that effective today, I believe beginning at 5 o'clock this morning, there was a switchover from... WKTI, which used to be KTI Country, now to 94.5 ESPN. What, what? Tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I think for us, we're so concerned about the long term, and we are, as radio stations, our success is the success of our advertisers. And I've always been so nervous to just be in a music format where you're – Really, nowadays, there's so many ways to get music. And how do you differentiate yourself? Oh, well, we're going to differentiate ourselves by, we're going to be commercial-free for three hours. We're going to be the ones who play less commercials. What does that say about the people who pay your bills? Like, those those are our partners. Those are the people who we want to be the most successful. And in news, in sports, the advertisers become a part of it. You know, in the NBA, we have... Ads on the jerseys now, you know, people accept it and it's and it's part of the product. And to me, that creates that win, win, win that good karma is based on. It's based on us growing our teammates, our fans and our partners. And so ESPN has just been such an important part of that growth because we've seen the success of the brand. And we've been ESPN in the Milwaukee market since 2004. 
first on 1510 AM, which was a daytime only signal. Then in 2008, we were able to go to 540 ESPN and grow to be a 24 hour signal. And now to have 94.5, you know, as heritage and as meaningful a radio station on the FM side as there is in the state and to put our team that's been working so hard to build our product for the last 14 years is very gratifying to me because it'll give us a lot of opportunities. If you think about all of the professional and college teams we work with and high school sports, to be able to have you know 94.5 and 540, to be able to be multiple distribution points in addition to 620, which has had you know all of this play-by-play, just makes us a better destination for the sports fan. And we've seen ESPN on television. I mean, first, David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, he didn't give the rights to the NBA to ESPN because he said, who would ever want a station that's 24-hour sports? What are they going to fill up with 24 hours of sports? Well, now, fast forward 30-plus years, ESPN, ESPN2, the SEC Network, ESPN this, ESPN that. And that's what we see on the audio side, especially here in Milwaukee. There is an unquenchable thirst for Packers, Brewers, Bucks, Marquette, Badgers, you know, sports of all nature. So to have three different stations that can be those distribution points with 94.5 FM and 540 uh, ESPN joining together as a simulcast for now, but eventually being able to offer two entirely separate products will really meet the needs of the consumers in the market. Now, Craig, since the, the purchase was announced, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, what, what does this mean for, for WTMJ? Is, are, are, we gonna, are, are we going to turn on the radio one day and WTMJ isn't going to be news and sports and talk? It's going to be polka music or, or whatever. I mean, looking forward, any major changes planned at TMJ? Well, the Barn Show in Beaver Dam has been very successful from 5 to 6 uh, every afternoon. So I will be talking to John this afternoon about if he wants to go to an all-polka format from 5 until 6. Uh, you know, but he controls you know, what he does during his, his, uh, his airtime. Now, I, I, don't, I don't see any major changes coming. There definitely is not a format change coming. You know, what we want to be is the best Wisconsin radio station we can be and really take seriously that idea of serving the communities that we're in. And with the news, the information that we provide, it's so valuable. And what we want to have are talk programs like yours that are going to appeal to people and keep them listening and engaged in what we're doing. So it's what we're not, we weren't buying WTMJ to change WTMJ. We were buying WTMJ to help give it uh, a few uh, brothers and sisters mm-hmm. so that we can have that much more powerful uh, of a message to be able to say. Like, I mean, think about severe weather coming up. And if there is severe weather during a Bucks game, you know, do we need to break into the game a bunch of times or cut away from the game? Well, you know what? Now we have multiple stations that are all on the same page. So let's have one of them go full time updating people on the weather and one of them full time. On the Bucks game, you know, the more we can serve people in the right way, the better. I, I, I also get asked a lot of questions about your your particular ideology. Is this guy a, a left-wing activist who's going to try to remake WTMJ's talk programming as, as Air America? Is he some conservative activist who's not going to let you criticize Donald Trump? So, and I keep saying, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I, let me ask you. <laughs> 
you know, I'm, I'm mostly an activist that comes down to my wallet. Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, I was a, I was a Yankees fan for my whole life and a Knicks fan for my whole life. But the day I became an owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, I had no allegiance to the New York Knicks. It was, it was amazing how quickly that changed. So, you know, for me, I, I'm not here. I have no political agenda to advance. Um, I would insult everyone on all sides by saying I, I, I don't understand the two party system and I, I don't get it. And I don't, I don't, I don't see how, how it makes sense that everyone, you know, could agree on one party that this is all good and that's all bad. So I stay out of politics because I, I really, I don't, I don't find myself relating to either party, um, when it comes to, you know, the way I believe in growing our country. So I, it's, it's just not a part of who I am and how I believe. And again, for me, it's about how do we engage the largest potential audience and, what I do, what I would say is, and I think, um, has been a question here over time is, should, I think everyone should feel welcome coming to WTMJ, you know, 24 hours a day. And whether you agree or disagree with our hosts, I would hope people feel welcome coming here at all times. And that's how I feel about all of our stations. And again, as a public service, you know, hey, if you were a Brett Favre fan, and Aaron Rodgers was the quarterback, and our host believed in Aaron Rodgers and was ready to move on from Brett Favre, I would want that Brett Favre fan to feel welcome. Mm -hmm. And to me, I can't imagine there could be anything more divisive than an Aaron Rodgers-Brett Favre debate. So if our state could get through that, (laughs) then, I mean, come on, gubernatorial elections and, and congressional elections, those should be easy. Craig Carmazan, CEO of Good Karma Brands, new owner of WTMJ. Welcome. I hope, as a matter of fact, I'd like to do this from time to time. People might not know this, but you, you did your own radio show for the longest time, you know, in, in Milwaukee. Well, you just said it in past tense, so I don't know if I got fired. Oh, <laughs> but I, I, I think I still have a show. All uh, right. You know, every, every Sunday morning from 10 until noon. Um, I don't know with the shift to 94.5 if they're going to keep me, but, uh, Mark Chimura and I have been uh, doing a show that he started in 2004. And after, you know, I had a 10 year run of doing afternoon drive. Right. That's what I mean. Yep. A daily show. Yeah. Right, my daily I mean. afternoon <laughs> drive show was canceled uh, by our program directors who have the ability to fire me at any time. Uh, but my Sunday morning show from 10 until noon, uh, you know, is still going, uh, unless, you know, uh, I'll be, uh, I'll stay tuned, uh, you know, at the top of the hour for breaking news. Hopefully Melissa doesn't, uh, tell me some, uh, breaking news about my radio show. I don't think you have to worry about that, but Craig Carmazan, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon and, and welcome aboard. We're, we are thrilled to have this new partnership. I yeah. can tell you, I think it's exciting for all of us. Yeah, me too. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break back with more in just a minute. 1229, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We uh, did live stream uh, my conversation with uh, Good Karma Brand CEO Craig Karmazin, and, and it is posted on Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. So if you want to go back, uh, you, you can see it where he talks about his vision for, for radio and his vision for WTMJ and ESPN 94.5 and um, his role and he, what he believes is the role of radio moving forward. So uh, there you, you heard it from the boss. All right. The, the story about what happened in Sun Prairie just gets worse and worse. Now, the, the breaking news, of course, is that there has been a search warrant that was unsealed that gives some insight into what ended up happening last July when you had that explosion that caused all the damage and resulted in the loss of life. Here's what the the search warrant 
affidavit said that um, two buildings, one at 100, 104 West Main Street in Sun Prairie, exploded about 40 minutes after a gas leak had been reported to 911. Properties from 100 to 113 West Main Street on both sides of the street were destroyed. So the question becomes, you know, what what ended up happening? All right, well, here's the deal. Um, there's this this company called VC Tech, which was subcontracted by a Verizon contractor to place fiber communication lines underground for Verizon. They told the investigators that um, the contractor, Bear Communication, had told them that Digger's Hotline had been called on July 9th and that VC Tech could do horizontal directional boring through Bristol Street and Main Street. So in other words, they... They had called, they had said, okay, let, let's mark this for gas line. Work began after looking over lines painted by this particular company and formulating a plan. Um, apparently, southwest corner of the Bristol Main Street intersection, um, the contractor and other VC Tech employees smelled gas and called 911. They took a photo of the area with their phone before evacuating. The photo showed no T markings indicating an intersecting, intersecting utility like a gas line on the pavement. Investigators later confirmed that on the ground above the area where VC Tech struck a gas line, there were no markings indicating an intersecting utility. Instead, there was a yellow painted T on the sidewalk about 25 feet to the north of the damaged pipeline. No gas line was located there. So it appears that, um, you know, the company that was supposed to mark this area for, again, where the gas line was, they they were wrong. They were 25 feet off. Um, And then when they went back, they looked at the utilities by We Energies. The gas line was found in the road, not on a sidewalk as marked by this particular company. So the Sunbury police chief, then the police department, they try to reach employees of the company that was charged with the responsibility for marking the gas line. Um, they were told that, no, we're, we're not going to cooperate. The company refused to identify the employee who marked the utilities, um, said it would release the information, but only if ordered by a court. The company that was charged with responsibility for doing this is something known as USIC. Uh, let's see what essentially what they go on and they find is that they had marked, they had failed, the company that was charged with marking the the lines had had failed to do it properly and were 25 feet off, and that led to the drilling and it led to the explosion. I mean, I guess the the simplest thing is, you know, we're always told to call Digger's Hotline. Don't dig unless, you know, you're going to be calling Digger's Hotline. Let them come out and mark it. And if you've had work done on your property, chances are you've had that happen, and you've seen them draw the spray paint the different lines. In this case, before the contractor that was doing the drilling to put in these fiber lines, before they, they did the drilling, they did, in fact, contact the company, mark the lines, tell us where we can drill. The company that did it was wrong by 25 feet, and as a result, you have ultimately the explosion. Well, this is now part of an ongoing criminal investigation. And the real question is, um, was this criminal recklessness? Should the company be charged? Should the individuals responsible for this be charged? And, and under the law, if you behave in a reckless fashion, 
which leads to the loss of life, that could be and is a crime. Criminal recklessness, and I'm looking at the statute now, means that the person who did it created an unreasonable and substantial risk of death or great bodily harm to another human being, and that the person who did it was aware of that risk. All right, I want to open up the phone lines. Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, this this is a horrible, horrible situation. You had the loss of life. You had massive destruction of property. And it appears to be directly, in this case, I think at least if you look at the search warrant, maybe there's more to the story, but if you look at the search warrant, it appears to be that whoever was charged with marking those lines didn't do their job properly. And as a result, you have this explosion. Now, every time somebody makes a mistake, even if it leads to bad consequences, that doesn't mean that somebody's, you know, guilty of a crime. That's what you have civil courts for. You sue, you determine who has responsibility, and then you get damages. Does this sound to you, though, that this is more than just a civil case? Is this a crime? Did the company that was charged with marking the lines by failing to do it right, did they, did the employee who was tasked with this, did they commit a crime and should they be criminally prosecuted? 414-799-1620. We discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Essentially, this, this explosion that you had in Sun Prairie in early July, when a contractor, when they were doing drilling and they ended up hitting a gas line, according to a search warrant that was just recently unsealed, there's this Indiana company called USIC, and they were charged with the task of going out and, and marking the utility lines. And whoever did that for the company was wrong. They, they didn't mark where the, the gas line was. In fact, they marked something like 25 feet away. So then the other contractor comes out. They start to do the drilling. They think that there's no gas lines around there, and they drill down. They hit the gas line, and the rest is history. All right, clearly, big mistake. Big mistakes. It's being investigated as a crime. Um, does this strike you as being criminally Criminally reckless. Here's a text. Jeff, we own a business that frequently needs to call Digger's Hotline. This is primarily done because it's the law and the fines are rather large if we don't. However, we always do our own tracking and marking of utilities and buried lines because over the years we have found Digger's Hotline and their contractors extremely unreliable with regard to where they mark utilities. Let's talk to Robert in Fredonia. Robert, good afternoon. What a great way to open this. (laughs) I have been in the industry for 30 years. And there's a lot more layers to this than to, to throw the locator under the bus. I'm not a locator. Uh, I work with them a lot. I don't know who did that locate, but I will tell you that they're only working with the plans that are provided to them by the utility. And a lot of times those plans are dated. And, you know, that's one layer. The next layer is, it was reported that the person doing the drilling was uh, actually operating on somebody else's locating ticket, which you cannot do technically. Uh, and there's a lot of layers to this. To well, let me let's locate. go back to the first one that you mentioned that that you know the utilities oftentimes they might be mismarked. I mean, here, here's what the search warrant says: that We Energies provided a map showing the gas utilities in the area. And the gas line on the Reenergy's map was in the road 
not on the sidewalk marked by USIC. So in this case, the, the, the plans that we energies had had the line where it was, not where they, they marked it 25 feet away. As long as those, if, if you were the person calling in the coordinates for that locate, as long as you provided them with the correct coordinates of where you wanted this locate, that's another layer to it that, um, you know, a lot of times these locates are called in remotely, say, by a company in Michigan who happened to be doing the drilling. Okay, they, they show up on site. Uh, their office people call in a locate for a to an uh, intersection where they've never been before. Their workers get out, and they, you know, they're working via cell phone, calling back and forth. Hey, I'm out here. I'm going to drill. They go to drill. They're actually maybe in the wrong spot. Maybe their locate was called in, you know, 100 feet south of where they're actually working. If that they're, were the case, Robert, and if that were the case, would it be in the interest of the company that, that mismarked the, the lines to to be saying that? Because th- this company has gone silent. They, they've refused to cooperate with law enforcement. Um, they're, they're not letting their employees talk to law enforcement, which is fine. They're essentially taking the fifth. That That's their right to do it. But if that's the explanation, hey, we got, you know, the, the, we marked the coordinates we were told, and, you know, it's not our fault. Wouldn't it make sense if that were the case that they would get ahead of the story and be telling that story? I, I would agree. Okay. I would agree. I, I will tell you this, and I'll let you go because this is a deep topic. Um, if 30 years doing this, uh, kind of the running joke in the industry is who's the lowest paid person on the job site? Guess who that person is? <laughs> the one that's marking the, the utility lines. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, 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 I thanks. Mean, they, they're, yeah. they're begging for people. They can't find them because they do not pay. Uh, well, thanks. For, well, I mean, and again, I, I, maybe there is, maybe there is more to, to this story, but right now you have at least the search. What we know what happened that the, the line was, was mismarked. Now, again, maybe, Maybe it's because the company that, that called in the, the thing, maybe they gave them the wrong coordinates. I, I, I don't know. Now, again, it would seem to me if I were if I were the attorneys representing that company, I, I'd be all over that. If that was really the case, I'd be saying, look, this is not our problem. You know, we did our job. We if that were the case, this is what we went out and investigated. I mean, I, I will say this. And again, that the, the search warrant and says that the, the we energies map showed the utility line where it it really was, not where this company marked it as being. So I, I it's it's hard for me, I guess, to believe that there were wrong coordinates. This is this is not one where it was mismarked by We Energies. But I guess the, the bottom line here is clearly there is civil liability. Clearly. I mean there's going to be lawsuits, but of course lawsuits only go so far. If, in fact, and, and I guess to answer my question of do I think there's criminal recklessness, m- my answer is I think there might be. I, and I don't know for sure. I guess what you'd want to do is you'd want to hear what happened. What, how could you be this wrong? It would seem to me this is one of those things where you've you got to know you're marking utility lines. You're marking gas lines. And I think it is reasonably foreseeable that if you're off by – and we're not talking about off by a foot. We're talking about off by 25 feet. I mean, this one wasn't even close. Lord knows what it was that they were looking at. But when you're putting down and you're telling people, hey, you're going to dig um, and you can be safe. Trust us. We're going to put the markings here so you know when you dig, you're not going to have to worry about these different types of things. And you miss it by 25 feet. I think that there is at least the potential that this could be conduct that rises 
to the level of criminal recklessness. Um, and, and I applaud the authorities for investigating this because something bad happened here. Somebody screwed up badly, and people need to get to the bottom of it. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1255, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Coming up in about 10 minutes is Republican candidate for Congressman, Congress, Brian Stile, a screaming anti-Semite, or is this a pathetic last-minute Hail Mary attack? It's going to be an interesting conversation, I guarantee it. One final thought on what we were just talking about, the Sun Prairie explosion. I have a text from one of our listeners. No, I would tell – no, Jeff, I think you're wrong. I wouldn't talk. I would tell my employees you don't say nothing because of litigation. In my opinion, that would be a staggeringly stupid thing to do. And let me explain to you why. Because, yes, you you can say, all right, we're not going to say anything and because we don't want it to be used against us. But if you had exculpatory information, if you're being accused of not properly marking this thing, causing this explosion that led to the loss of lives, and you had exculpatory information, hey, look at the coordinates we were given, for example. You know, we we marked where we were told they were going to dig. All right, well, that, and and you don't share that. Well, okay, maybe maybe you're trying to save that for later on down the line. But that's the recipe that ends up getting you indicted in federal court or charged criminally. I mean, it's just if if you've got stuff that that again is exculpatory. Now, in this particular case, they apparently marked an intersection of where they said the pipes were, and that's not where the gas lines were. So I, I don't know that there's anything that's exculpatory that's out there, but if you have it and you decide not to share it, well, okay, maybe that's a cunning strategy because you want to save yourself for you know future litigation, but it's also the thing that gets you and your employees charged criminally. All right, speaking of, I don't know that it's a crime, but speaking of an employee who my guess is probably doesn't have a job today, You might have seen the story over the weekend. There was an American Airlines baggage handler who fell asleep in the cargo area of a Boeing 737 in Kansas City, and he ended up in Chicago, fell asleep in the cargo hold. Well, now the story is coming out, and surprise follows surprise, alcohol was involved. Guy's a baggage handler. At Kansas City International Airport, he shows up Saturday afternoon drunk. So let me just say this. If you've ever wondered where your bags are when you get to the airport and they're gone, well, well, maybe it was this particular baggage handler. It was handling. He shows up drunk at the airport. He's loading bags onto this 737. He crawls into the cargo hold and decides to take a nap slash pass out. <laughs> so he's drunk. He passes out in the cargo hold. Nobody notices that Fred, I don't know what the guy's name is. Nobody notices that Fred's not there. They seal up the cargo hold. The plane takes off. Fred is sleeping during the hour and 10 minute flight from Kansas City to Chicago. The cargo hold is apparently pressurized and heated. Thank goodness. Yeah, so they open up the plane in Chicago to kind of get the bags out and Fred stumbles off. You know, <laughs> what, what's going on here? So he is now in Chicago. Uh, they apparently sent Fred back to Kansas City. The, the, um, they're, they're saying, well, we're not going to say this is a personnel matter. We're, we're not going to say what's happened to Fred. Again, just like if I were the Packers, I would have cut Ty Montgomery, you know, in the locker room in Los Angeles. This is one of those deals where if the guy stumbles out of the cargo hold drunk um, after sleeping one off on this flight, 
I don't think I even send him back to Kansas City. I think it's just like, you are fired, you are on your own. But again, if you wonder why your bags didn't arrive, well, maybe maybe it was drunken Fred in Kansas City that was loading the cargo hold. Just saying. Stick around. It's 1250 at Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 107, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The election is on Tuesday. I know a number of people have voted, but if you look at the, the different polls that are out there, the Market University Law School poll, of course, which came out yesterday, you understand that, that many of these races are extremely tight, and, and it is a cliche, but I, I think this year, as much as any year, turnout is going to matter. Not just the public polls, but some like internal campaign polling that I, I've has been shared with me, says that these races, many, many of these races are toss-ups. And it, it all depends on whether who wins depends on which side is able to get their, their voters out. For a long time, the expectation was that there's going to be this blue wave and Democrats are going to be more motivated to vote. That That might be the case, but I think specifically in Wisconsin, I think you're starting to see a lot of Republican voters come home, as it were. So so these races are going to be close. And that means that as the campaign draws to its end, you have some campaigns and some candidates that are becoming increasingly desperate. Now, on Saturday, you had this horrible story out of Pittsburgh where you had the anti-Semitic whack job who, after preaching on the social media, you know, years of hatred towards Jewish people, showed up at that temple during services and ended up, you know, killing 11 people. Just a, a horrible, horrible story, which has, I think, fairly opened up again a conversation about, you know, why, where does this anti-Semitism come from? And, and again, it's something I said this the other day. It is just so completely alien to me as somebody who has a large number of friends who are Jewish, who, you know, grew up in a community. I, when I, when I went to Nicolay High School in Glendale, again, my guess is the student body was 25 to 30 percent, uh, comprised of, of Jewish students. I, I mean, it's, I don't understand. I don't understand religious hatred. I don't understand. I don't like this person because they're Catholic or I don't like this person because of that or this. I just, I've never gotten it. But I understand that you do have this undercurrent of anti-Semitism that exists, unfortunately, in this country and exists in, in this world. And I think when you identify that, just like when you identify racism, you need to call it out and you need to say, all right, look, we're, we're going to stop this because this is evil and this is preaching hatred. At the same time, I, 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 it's, whether it's, it's playing the race card or whether it's screaming anti-Semitism when it's not. I, I think that's bad, too, because it diminishes the, the true examples of racism or anti-Semitism that's in this world. And this issue has now bubbled up in the race for Congress in the 1st Congressional District. You've got the Republican candidate, Brian Stile, who's running. I, I, I think most people believe that he is ahead. This is the Paul Ryan seat. Um, and early on... What you had is you had, you know, this this Randy Bryce, who is the the iron worker, 
who was recruited and decided to run early on. And he was, this is when Paul Ryan was at least presumed to be running again. And Randy Bryce was sort of recruited and he was going to be the guy that was going to take on Paul Ryan. And if, if the, the thinking was, we're going to make him the, the focal point of a lot of Democrat campaigns. And if he could diminish Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, well, that might lead to a Democrat wave. And so he has, since he's been running, despite the fact that he is an extremely flawed candidate in so many different levels, whether it's his, his background and his arrest record and things like that, but, but he's been the darling of the, the national Democrats. Ninety percent of his money, I believe, has come from out of state. I mean, but but that's that's where he is. So anyhow, they have a debate on Monday, and um, one of the allegations they've been going after Brian Style, alleging that he was responsible for outsourcing jobs. That is a complete and total lie. Washington Post even gave that multiple Pinocchios. He, he wasn't doing that. But then now there are allegations of anti-Semitism. Here's here's the story, and then I want to open up the phone lines and get your reaction. One of the things that the style campaign, he is the Republican, has been hitting Bryce on is that, you know, he's got all this out-of-state support. It's all this out-of-state money that's coming in. So they have a debate Monday, and this is what Brian Style says. I'm proud of the Wisconsin-based campaign that I'm running. Randy, now he's addressing uh, Bryce, I'll read you a couple of cities, New York, Hollywood, Pasadena, Denver, Atlanta, New York, Washington. Remember those? That's where Randy Bryce went to go fundraise. He's bringing an out-of-state liberal money into this campaign. And then during the debate, a tweet that's posted to Stiles' Twitter account reads, If my opponent's money talked, it would have an East Coast accent. All right, that's what it says. He, he's, the, the comment in the debate is he's getting all his money from these out-of-state sources, New York, Hollywood, Pasadena, Denver, Atlanta, New York, Washington. Remember those? And then if my opponent's money talked, it would have an East Coast accent. All right, that's this thing. One of the members of the Bryce campaign immediately responds and says, this comment is anti-Semitic. This is an anti-Semitic dog whistle, if I ever heard of it. Um, dog whistle being, I mean, you know, dog whistle is something that only dogs could hear. So a dog whistle, that reference is, this is something, it's a way of communicating to, in this case, anti-Semites in a fashion that they could only hear. And the argument is that when this text says, if my money, if opponent's money talked, it would talk with an East Coast accent, that is really an allusion to the fact that he has a lot of support in the Jewish community. Their statement says that the money having an East Coast accent was a direct reference to the Jewish community in a disgusting, stereotypical, and shameful way. With dangerous anti-Semitic rhetoric on the rise all over the country, it is deeply concerning to see Brian Stiles stoop to Trump-style whistles that aim to divide us. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. All right. Now, the context is that style the Republican ripping Randy Bryce for all the out-of-state money. The point being, this isn't a Wisconsin-based campaign. And one of the things that is said on the Twitter account is, if my opponent's money talked, it would talk with an East Coast accent. The response is, 
This is anti-Semitic because when you say East Coast accent, you are sending coded phrases that his supporters are Jewish. And, you know, we then should be, I don't know, concerned about that. All right, 414-799-1620. Does this strike you as as truly an anti-Semitic statement, or is this kind of a desperate Hail Mary in the last couple days of the campaign? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 115, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 118, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, this is... This is the issue that is bubbling up in the 1st Congressional District. That's Paul Ryan's old seat. The Republican candidate is Brian Stile. The Democrat is the Iron Stash, this Randy Bryce, who's got more baggage than that baggage handler that fell asleep in the airport in Kansas City over the weekend. And I I, I think a lot of people believe that this is Stile's race to lose. And Bryce clearly upset. So they're having a debate, and at one point in time, the Republican, Brian Stile, is hitting Randy Bryce on the fact that his money, all this support that the guy has to run all these different ads you see, the vast majority of it is coming from these, these out-of-state liberal donors who have decided to jump on this bandwagon because they decided he was going to be the chosen one to take on Paul Ryan. So the comment that is raised is um, by the Republican, by Stile, he says, I'm proud of the Wisconsin-based campaign that I'm running Randy, I'll read you a couple cities, New York, Hollywood, Pasadena, Denver, Atlanta, New York, Washington. Remember those? That's where Randy Bryce went to go fundraise. He's bringing an out-of-state liberal money into this race. And then there's a corresponding tweet that says, if money talked, it would talk with an East Coast accent. And immediately the Bryce people are going, oh, this is anti-Semitic. When when you say East Coast accent, you're, you're automatically giving a dog whistle message that you're talking about how it's Jewish people that support Randy Bryce. To which my response would be, huh? I I mean, seriously, I I think, and especially in light of what happened last weekend, you know, when you see anti-Semitism, it needs to be called out and it needs to be identified and it needs to be rejected. But at the same time, to, to allege that's a pretty big card to play. And if you're going to play that card, I think you have to have a lot more than just Oh, it has an East Coast accent. I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase East Coast accent, I don't, I, I would never have associated that with, oh, that's a dog whistle code for Jewish people. I, I mean, when I think of, I, I mean, you know, you, you think of the, the New York or the Brooklyn accent or whatever, I, I just, to, to say that that is a reference to Jewish people, well, I think it's a, a bridge way, way, way too far. Mark and Bristol texts, desperation is a stinky cologne. This is a last-ditch effort to undermine a great candidate. I met Brian in Sturdivant. I told him I wanted to shake his hand, and he already had my vote, um, so don't waste time with me. We talked all about almost 15 minutes. What a fantastic person for this job. Um, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Yet I also understand that there's sometimes where you have this debate, um, is, is this is something playing the race card? Is it not playing the race card? And and again, occasionally there are issues I think where legitimate people can disagree. In all candor though, to to try to link this 
which is a common attack that candidates make on other candidates. Oh, you know, it's all Hollywood money or it's all New York money or whatever to say that that's this code word dog whistle referring to people of a certain religion. I don't think anybody, I don't think any rational person makes that sort of equation. Um, let's talk to Alex and Racine. Alex, you're in WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Long Hi, time, first time. Um, love the show. Thank you, sir. Uh, so I think that it, it really says something about the, the Democratic Party, specifically Randy Bryce's campaign. I just think it's absurd that they would link that to anti-Semitism after a tragedy. It seems like they're playing on the emotional response of a tragedy. And I think that that's just really shameful. Well, well, right, it, it, exactly, and and it's why I, I think you. Have, it's why I think it is appalling to again play that particular card in this context, where I, I it's clearly being done for political gain, not not reality. I mean, if you're going to call somebody an anti-Semite, you you better you better have a lot of evidence to support that. Certainly, a lot more evidence than he said. Well, you know, your money comes with a New York accent because everybody's going to understand that when you say New York accent, you're referring to Jewish people. What? You know, I, I don't, I, I don't think of that. I think of the New York accent. I think of the people. I, I, I mean, I, I think of that Brooklyn accent and stuff. I don't think this. I don't think of. I don't. I've never linked it to a religion. No, and I'm pretty sure the Jewish faith uh, comes in all sorts of accents, and the East Coast comes in East Coast accents. So. I, uh, yeah, no. I mean, th- thanks to call. I mean, it, it again. It th- this idea of trying to you know bring bring religion into this, I, I think is is again it, it's a stretch. It is a desperation, and it adds an element into this campaign that candidly, I, I mean, just fl- frankly, doesn't belong. Danny in West Dallas. Danny, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good. What do you think? Okay, was this anti-Semitic? Oh God, no. Um, I'm Jewish to begin with, or at least part way. My mom was Jewish, mm-hmm. and I'm not practicing. But I listen to something like that, and okay, what I think of in in Eastern accent, first thing I think of was the Kennedys. Yeah, and, kind of like that 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 sort of Boston accent. Yeah, well, people people who think Dora the Explorer are words that rhyme. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, again, I, I but that that's it. I mean, East Coast accent could mean. Different things to to different people, depending on where you're talking about in the East Coast. People from Philadelphia speak with a slightly different accent than people from Baltimore, which is where my parents are from, who speak with a different accent than, say, people in New York City who speak with a slightly different accent than people who are from Boston. And maybe, maybe you know, I don't know. I don't know that many people from Maine, but maybe that's a little bit different. But again, it, it's... We all know what it's referring to, and it's not referring to people based on their religion. Now, again, if if you're going to call somebody an anti-Semite, you, you, you better have a lot of evidence to back that up. And in this particular case, I think it's just another one of these frivolous charges that is being thrown around. All right. I need a show of hands. I'm going to ask for a show of hands in just a couple minutes, but I want you thinking about this ahead, ahead of time. Have you had a 13.6% raise any time in the near past? Stick around. We'll talk about it in just a minute. I'll tell you why that's important. It's 125. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
It's 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. The holidays right around the corner, and WTMJ is back with our annual holiday radio show. WTMJ presents The Night Before Christmas, starring Gene Miller, Jane Matinere, yours truly. And a sleigh full of Wisconsin celebrities from Turner Hall in downtown Milwaukee on Monday, November 26th at 6.30. The live radio play will be recorded in front of a studio audience, and you can be a part of it. Buy your tickets now. Go to WTMJ.com or text the word Christmas to 414-799-1620. All right. I need to see a show of hands. Everybody who has had a raise totaling, let's round up, 14%. Over the last four years, can I see a show of hands? Groom, who's producing the show today and always, your hand is not going up. No. You're, 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 he says, I'm still sitting in this chair. The hand is not going up. All right. Now, one of our listener, one of our fans here, Heather, she texts in and says, Jeff, I did get a substantial raise in the last year, but that's because I went back to school. I got a degree and I got a job that pays better than the job that I had. All right. So that, that's fine. But so let, let's, let's narrow the, the discussion for just a minute. For everybody who is doing essentially the same job that you were doing four years ago, can I see a show of hands of everybody who's gotten a 14% pay increase? Huh. Let's see. No, no. Not too many hands are going up. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the reason you, you little folks out there, haven't gotten a 14% pay raise is because chances are you have to go and, and convince somebody else, your your boss, to give you that raise. Which brings me to the story posted in the Journal Sentinel recently involving Milwaukee Alderman. Here's the headline. Milwaukee Alderman, advanced plan to give 13.6% pay increases to elected officials over four years. Here's the story. The Milwaukee Common Council wants a raise. A plan to give pay increases to aldermen and other elected officials is advancing at City Hall. The raises for elected officials would amount to an increase of 13.6% over four years, including a 4% bump in 2020, followed by 3% increases for three consecutive years. Aldermen, who now have a base pay of $73,222, by the way, they also make per diem. So it's $73,222 plus per diem. Aldermen, who now have a base pay of $73,222 per year, would make $83,212 by 2024 under the proposal. The raise would take effect for those officials re-elected or newly elected in the spring of 2020. The Finance and Personnel Committee voted yesterday to approve the raises, and the full Common Council is expected to vote on the measure next week. We're going to give ourselves more money. You think there's going to be too many people voting against it? All right. Here's what the lead sponsor of the program, Shantia Lewis, says. It seems as if every year we're talking, we're talking increasing everyone's pay except for us. Elected officials have been frozen for 10 years. Lewis added that the salaries of Milwaukee elected officials are lower than those of comparable cities. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, the debate grew heated. <clears throat> Alderman Michael Murphy objected to the plan. One of the comparisons I really look at is the median salary. Somebody makes in the city of Milwaukee what they make. So the average person in Milwaukee makes about $36,000. So our compensation currently right now is twice 
what the average person makes in the city of Milwaukee. The Common Council's base salary would increase from 82,007 to 94,000 in 2024. The plan passed the committee on a three to two vote. All right. Let's open up the phone lines. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's not exactly like Milwaukee aldermen are underpaid. They make seventy-three grand a year. On top of that, they get per diem. On top of that, they get a benefit package that, courtesy of the taxpayers, many people would figuratively kill for. It's a good gig, and it's a good-paying gig. And for many of the people that serve as aldermen, not all, but many of them, they couldn't come close to making that amount of money in the real world. But some of them are unhappy. They think they need more dough. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, are you sympathetic to this? Do you think, for example, that unless you raise the salary by ten grand over a period of four years, you're not going to get qualified people that are going to run for those spots? 414-799-1620, And again, I mark the tape. I don't say this very often, but, you know, Alderman Murphy does make a good point. He says, well, you know, the average citizen in the city of Milwaukee, they, they make thirty six grand, And my guess is... They don't have a benefit package and 401ks and health insurance and retirement and all this stuff. Anything close to what a city alderman makes. And some of the aldermen, they're not satisfied. They want more. All right. Let's start out with James in Milwaukee. James, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. You know, this, this, I didn't even hear anything about this. This makes me a little wild right now. Because, you know, I work for the city of Milwaukee, and I've been working there for a long time. And you know what we got for a raise since 2008? We got nine-tenths of a percent. We ended up with a 1% raise a few years back, a 1.5% raise. Then they took 5.5 away from us and gave us 3.9. That's 0.9% raise that we had since the summer of 2008. Okay, so now we're in the summer of two. We're, so let me just stop here. So now we're in the sum, we're we're in the fall of 2018. You're saying that you've gotten all in, all done. You've gotten as an employee less than a one percent raise over ten years, and, and and now these aldermen are talking about giving themselves a thirteen percent raise over four years. Huh? Yeah, me mad because I didn't know this. I just heard it from you guys now. Uh, um. <laughs> Well, if, if I were a city employee, James, I would be feeling exactly the way you do. I, it, it, it just—it's unbelievable that you would that you would look. If they were talking about okay, a two or three percent raise over four years, I, I would understand. They're talking about an almost fourteen percent raise over four years. For goodness sakes! And when you talk about fourteen percent, you understand now there's a difference between fourteen percent of thirty-five thousand and. And fourteen percent of seventy-five thousand. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yes, exactly. No, th- thanks for calling, Jim. No, that that that, that is what I am here for. <clears throat> this it is, it is an amazing thing. And again, I, I just I, I think this demonstrates some of the cluelessness 
that you have on the part and you see from time to time on the part of elected officials and this tone deafness that is out there as well. And I mean, again, I don't know if James is a public employee in the city of Milwaukee. I don't know if his experience is typical of other public employees. But seriously, wouldn't you like to say to these members of the Common Council, if it is in fact true that city employees have had a a 1% or a 2% or a 3% raise over the last 10 years, how in the world can you justify giving yourselves a, a 13% raise given the fact that, num- number one, 13%, but number two, the fact that you're probably already making a lot more money than, you know, the people that are actually working for the city? All right, we're going to pick it up right there in just a moment. 13.6% raise over four years. Common Council is going to be voting on it next week. Um, it's 143. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, if you're just tuning in, uh, the city of Milwaukee, the, the members of the Common Council are considering giving themselves a raise. Now, it would only apply to people who are elected in the next election, but that raise over a four-year period between 2020 and 2024 would be, well, in the neighborhood of $10,000. It would be a, almost a 14% increase over those four years, taking their salary from seventy-three grand to eighty-three grand. Somebody said, just out of curiosity, how much does a state assembly person make? And they make about 50000 So Milwaukee aldermen already make $23,000 a year more than the state representative makes. Now, again, both of them get per diem, so that, that might change it a little bit. But base salary, Milwaukee aldermen, it's a pretty darn good gig. But they're not happy. They want more, 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 more money. And isn't it nice that you can decide on your own salary yourself. You can vote on what your salary is going to be. How do you think that would work in many segments? Maybe, what do you think, Ruth? Should you and I be able to vote on what our salaries would be? Oh, I don't think the people at Good Karma Brands would think that would be a very good idea. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Kevin in Oconomowoc. Kevin, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff, and thank you for bringing this topic to mind. Yes, sir. For those of us who pay attention to what's going on in life, Stuff like this needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. The issue of getting a raise used to pertain to those who performed up to a certain level and beyond. If you want a collective bargaining unit, you got your raise sprout over time. Right. What have these people done, these people being the aldermen, to improve the lot of the life of the people in Milwaukee? Now, people say, well, you're an Oconomowoc. No, I'm a Milwaukee born and raised guy. My, I'm in transition, looking at retirement soon, thinking I really kind of want to move back to the city to be near the lakefront. That's my kind of thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. But I can't do it. When I've got a county board in Milwaukee who's taken actions past and present that are way out of what I can tolerate. But now it seems like Milwaukee's become more like Chicago but they want more money. No, no, Kevin, what you need to do is you need to move back to Milwaukee and then run for alderman, and then then you're going to be all set. (laughs) You'll be rolling in the dough. Yeah, but then I'm only one person out of dozens. Yeah. I mean, maybe I could slide up next to Mike Murphy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you raise an interesting point, too, uh, about why... Where do... Why do... Why do they give raises? Employers give raises to retain quality people and, and generally speaking, and, and reward good work. Well, okay, in this particular case... 
if do you th- I don't see anybody quitting the Milwaukee count the Milwaukee Common Council because they're only quote unquote only making seventy three grand a year plus with an incredibly generous benefit package. This for for not all of them, but for several members, there's no way they could match this if they went back into the private sector. They're they are on the gravy train already, and this they want more gravy. Elections all about yeah. We're, we're starting to lose that focus. Um, thank, thanks for calling. Again, and it's look. I I don't object to people making more money. All right, I think I think that's great. But normally, it should be performance based, and there should be some tie into reality. And again, I, I'm repeating myself, but I keep coming back to the point that the that Alderman Murphy makes, and and I don't agree with him about a lot of stuff, but he's right. The what do you compare their salaries to? State assembly, like I say, that's fifty grand already. The alderman makes seventy three grand plus. Again, incredibly generous benefit packages. All right, what do you look at the average Milwaukeean? Average Milwaukeean makes thirty-six thousand dollars or thirty-eight grand or whatever that is, and my guess is a benefit package a lot less desirable, and that's still not enough for the people who are aldermen. Seriously, let's talk to uh, let's see Sue in Milwaukee. Sue, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Sue. Sue, Hi Sue, there. Sue. How are you? I am well, thank you. What do you think about all this? Okay, first of all, I'm going to start out on a positive note toward the older people in that I know that they don't have your typical 8 to 5 job. I know that they attend a lot of evening neighborhood meetings and, you know, they get phone calls at all hours of the night. Um, and, and I appreciate that, okay? On the other hand, if there is a person in the city of Milwaukee that makes $70,000 plus a year and cannot budget his his or her own life on that $70,000, is not it amazing that these are the same people that are dealing with our tax dollars? And, you know, if they can't budget their own personal life, how can they effectively budget the city? Um, yes. And, you know, and while you were talking, so I was also thinking, I, I, it used to be, that a number of members of the city council also had other jobs. Now, I, I don't, it's changed over a couple times, and off the top of my head, I, I don't know how many of them, you know, work at other jobs, but I, I know it used to be the case. It's not necessarily even a full-time job. You could be, you know, it's 73 grand a year with benefits, but, but there have historically been many people for whom it wasn't a full-time job. It was kind of a part-time job, and still they're making all this money. Well, I think the I think the older person, to be honest with you, is more of a full time job than say the um, the county representative. Yes, than the county. Well, that right, but that's damning with faint praise. But yes, <laughs> I agree right, with you right, there. Yeah, right. But I, I again, I mean, you know, if 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 I personally made seventy thousand dollars a year, I would be really comfortable. <laughs> uh, well, well, it, well, exactly. And again, it's not it's not so much. The, the amount, but it's the decision that you're going to give yourself a raise. Now, I understand that it's you have to run for for reelection. Whoever whoever gets elected gets that new raise. But what businesses operate like that, where you get to decide, and especially that much of a raise? Like I say, if you were they were saying, okay, we're we're going to give ourselves. Um, a 3% raise or a 4% raise, I don't know that that would be that big a deal. But they're talking about an almost 14% raise over a period of time. How can that not leave an incredibly bad taste in the mouths of the people who are going to be paying for that and then the other city employees who don't get close to that? 
Correct. Yeah. And and again, the benefit package. Right. And and we all know where that fourteen percent is going to come from. Oh. Our, our services are going to be cut, and our taxes are going to go up. It's right. It's it's not like this. I mean, thanks for call. I mean, you're right. It's not like the city of Milwaukee is rolling in dough, just like it's not like Milwaukee County is is rolling in dough. So, all right, we don't want to work on we we've got this lead this lead crisis in the water. Well, all right, that that's going to cost some money to fix. We you know every time it rains hard, the deep tunnel fills up, and we don't have the money to separate the sewers in Milwaukee, so we dump untreated poop into Lake Michigan. But we've got the money to have aldermen vote themselves a raise. Here's a text, Jeff. I also work for the city. Newer people that do my job get six dollars an hour less than me, and the city will never raise that. It's a city policy. So I mean. If if I were a city employee, and and I was, and and again, our our caller, the first caller, James, was saying, "Hey, I've last ten years, you net out what they took and what I got back. I've gotten like a less than one percent raise." And I heard that the Milwaukee Common Council were about to give themselves a fourteen percent raise, thirteen point six percent to be accurate, a thirteen point six percent raise over the course of the next few years. I I'd be grabbing, I'd be figuratively speaking, I'd be grabbing the pitchforks and I'd be heading for City Hall, going, "What are you doing?" 154, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 209, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Um, as we've been talking about all day today, it's a new new time in the history of this company. We Today is our first day as a member of the Good Karma Brands team. Um, interesting, very, very interesting. And there's all these new people running around. It, it really is, we're describing it kind of like it's the first day of school. Um, at the start of the program, if you weren't tuned in at 12.08, had a very interesting conversation with the CEO of uh, Good Karma Brands, Craig Karmazin. We've live streamed that on Facebook, and, and it's posted now. So you can go to Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ, and, and you can watch our conversation where we talk about Craig's background, which is extremely interesting, and um, the, the, his view of, of radio in general and the future of WTMJ and the future of our sister station, um, 94.5 ESPN. So you can, again, check that out. Hey, while you're at the website doing that, also be, be sure to go to our, our, our main webpage, WTMJ.com, and what you will find is, is you can go to our mobile apps page, and you can, again, subscribe to the podcast of, of many of our programs, including mine. I know a number of you do that, and you get a chance to make sure you don't miss anything, and I certainly appreciate that. Okay, let's switch gears. I, there's a very interesting story in the Journal Sentinel about a lawsuit that was just filed in federal court uh, against the city of Mequon and various Mequon police officers. And I, I want to tell you about this lawsuit and then kind of get your reaction. Many, many suburban police departments over the years have struggled with trying to crack down on underage drinking. You know, the fact that the parents are out of town and there's the party, et cetera, et cetera. And th- th- some communities are more aggressive than others. So here's apparently what happened. Um, a group of eight Homestead High School football players ha- had gathered at a house in Mequon, Halloween 2015. So this goes back three years. Now, according to the dad in the lawsuit, this would be the father, who I don't believe was home. Alcohol was not supposed to be available.
because these are members of the football team and they know that if they get caught drinking, they're going to get tossed off. So there's, he said, there's, there's not supposed to be alcohol that's available. Somebody, again, this is according to the lawsuit and we'll, we'll work our way through that in just a minute, but somebody who was unhappy because they weren't invited called Mequon's anonymous tip line and said, there's an underage drinking party going on here. All right. At that point in time, the, the Mequon police, they sent various squad cars to the house to investigate it. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The police go up to the door where this, now they've gotten this tip that it's an underage drinking party that's going on. They go up to the door, they, they bang on the door, and nobody answers. All right. They're, now, there's kids there. There's a party going, but nobody answers the door. They then try to call the house. Nobody answers. So after that, they start like swinging around. They go into the backyard, and one of them is is looking through a slit in the closed blinds of a window, and they see an open vodka bottle and a beer can. All right, but th- the key point is they're banging on the door, and nobody's answering. Nobody is coming to the door. Now, after they they get this information, we got this tip. We went out there. There's people in there. Nobody's answering the door. We looked through. We saw a vodka bottle and beer can, etc. What they do is they they go and they get a they get a search warrant. They contact uh, Sandy Williams, used to be the DA. Now she's a circuit court judge in Ozaki County, longtime friend of mine. Uh, they they give her a search warrant request and they get a search warrant. So about one thirty in the morning, with the search warrant, they then enter the home. What they find is the original eight attendees. Um, none of them have apparently alcohol in, in their bloodstream. There's another four people that are in the party, three girls and a boy, who presumably had come to the party later. They had been drinking elsewhere. They have positive breath tests. So the bottom line is the, the football players weren't drinking, I, I guess. So the police, they go, they execute the search warrant, and... Presumably, this isn't an underage drinking party like they thought it was once they get in and they're able to investigate. All right. So now the dad has filed a lawsuit alleging, uh, again, that the information they presented to the judge, um, they, they said it was a crime when, no, this would just be a municipal citation. Um, the, he goes on to say that um, he doesn't think that the judge should have issued the warrant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the lawsuit is, again, going after the Mequon police for how they handled this situation. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And the, the lawsuit seeks both punitive and compensatory damages as a result of, of what happened. Right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I don't really want to discuss the the legal theories, I, I guess, that are out there. The, the the claims are that, okay, the the judge shouldn't have issued the warrant and the information the police presented suggesting that a crime was being suspected. It was really just like a municipal violation, et cetera, et cetera. That, I, I don't want to get too far in the weeds with that. But I want to talk about this underlying fundamental lawsuit. The way I see it. What you had happen is you've got a bunch of kids that, all right, the cops are told they think there's a drinking party. They go out to investigate. They knock on the door. If any of those kids had simply answered the door, it this whole thing would have gone away. You, you answer the door, 
The police officer say, hey, we received this report that there's this underage drinking party. Officer, none of us are drinking. Um, here, you know, yeah, you won't even give us breath tests. We'll do it. The whole thing goes away. The, the whole thing goes away. This ends up happening because the kids don't answer the door, kind of lock themselves in. The kids don't answer the phone. And then the police have to go to step B or C or D. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. Do you think the police behaved in an improper fashion? And I want to talk about the general concept. Again, I don't want to get into the weeds of the particular, you know, legal theories that are out there. But the, the, if you're the Mequon police and you're presented with this information, you get the anonymous call that there's a, a drinking party going on, you respond, you know there's kids inside, you knock on the door, they're not answering this. All right, at that point in time, what are you supposed to do? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Is the president legally allowed to eliminate birthright citizenship? One of Wisconsin's federal lawmakers weighs in when he joins John McCure on Wisconsin's Afternoon News, 334 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. That that the Let me give you some a legal answer from a recovering lawyer here. The answer is, is no. The agree with birthright citizenship or not, that the 14th Amendment is very, very clear in its language. And if you want to eliminate birthright citizenship, what you have to do is uh, eliminate the 14th Amendment or alter the 14th Amendment. Yeah, I just don't think you can do it with executive order, but tune in. Hear what the uh, federal lawmaker thinks. All right, 414-799-1620. Let's start with Bill in Oak Creek. Bill, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I think if the millennials' feeling wasn't hurt, the phone call never would have been made, and the police never would have showed up. Yep. yep. And and therefore, if I, I thought the kids were smart, we're not doing anything wrong. We don't need you to come in here. So they don't answer the door. They don't answer the phone. And if you really want to get in here, due process. But but I guess what why is that? Why is that? Why is that smart? I mean, the police. You what you do by doing that is you now ratchet this up. You the, the police have this tip that there's a drinking party. If you're not doing anything wrong, why not just open the door, say, officer, we're not doing anything wrong, there's no drinking here. They then go away. By doing what they did, the police then, like you say, due process, they leave police officers there, they have this massive use of resources, they get the search warrant. Why not just open the door and, and cooperate? They're high school kids. Well, <laughs> not thinking clearly. Uh, okay, I, I thought it was brilliant. It's unfortunate that an anonymous tip had to harm them. Well, if I anonymous mean, tip harm them, no problem. Well, thanks, you. I see, but I guess I, I don't, I don't agree with the notion that the anonymous tip harmed them. The, the, the problem, the reason this went nuclear, is because the kids didn't cooperate with the the police. I mean, the only reason if. The police knock on, and I guess I go back, may, maybe just times have changed, but I got to tell you something. You know, I, I am picturing my late father and mother, and I got to tell you something. Glendale, Wisconsin, if, if I'm, if I'm a high school junior and I'm having a party and mom and dad are gone and somebody calls in something and the police bang on the door and my response is not to allow the cops in, I got to tell you, Ann and or Jack Wagner are kicking my butt. What do you mean you didn't answer the door? Well, we weren't doing anything wrong. Well, oh, okay. Well, then why don't you answer the door and then just you know, tell the police you're not doing anything wrong. No, there's no drinking going on here. They go home. Everybody, you know, everybody goes back to their respective corners and it's no problem. Now, again, 
I, I, I get the idea of due process, but think of what happened as a result of the refusal to cooperate. Then the officers have to make a decision. All right, nobody's cooperating here. Do we try to amass evidence to get a search warrant or not? And, and maybe the judge incorrectly issued it. I mean, I, I don't even want to go into the weeds with that. It's just the underlying situation here. If you answer, if you answer the door, don't, doesn't this whole problem go away? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Rick in Wauwatosa. Rick, you're on WTMJ. Rick. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Good. Well, I uh, I kind of have a side with the kids here. Um, I don't I don't believe that that just because somebody a police is knocking on your door that you have to answer it. Um, that kind of assumes that these kids are guilty and that they have to prove that they weren't drinking and that they weren't doing anything wrong. And I don't think that's the way it's it's supposed to work. If they're doing something wrong, that's fine. But I don't think they have to prove they're not doing something wrong or that they're innocent. I don't think if some of the police came and knocked on my door, do I have an obligation to answer it? Would you not? I'm curious. In the real world, if you're at home one night and the, the doorbell rings and, and you look out and you see it's the police, are you really not going to answer that? I, I Really? Probably 90% of the time you bet I'm going to answer sure. it. Sure. But I'm, I'm, but I'm just saying it's come to the fact, to the point now, where if you don't do exactly what the police want, You've done something wrong. I have to answer to the door to prove to these police that I'm not drinking. I don't. I don't like that process. I don't think it's right. Well, I guess. I mean, thanks. I mean, well, what? Put yourself in. Put yourself in the police's perspective. The the police get this call that says there's this underage drinking party going on. So what are they supposed to do? They they could ignore it. They could say, all right, well, we're not going to investigate. And then some kid, you know leaves that place drunk and hits and hits and kills somebody else or kills themselves. So they can choose not to investigate. All right, that's option number one, but that could go really bad. Option number two is they say, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to investigate. So they go out, they see cars parked or whatever. They know that there's a party going on. They simply bang on the door. They ring the doorbell. They knock on the door to see what is going on. They know there's people inside, and the kids refuse to answer the, the door. All right, now, I mean... Maybe you would counsel your kids to do that, but that would be almost mind-boggling to me. And, and again, do they have to answer the door? Do you have to cooperate with police? Well, well, no. You have, you know, you you don't have to cooperate. But at the same time, is that is that the right reaction to have? And and again, I go back. Maybe maybe I'm just old-fashioned. But but like I say, in a circumstance like that. If if my parents came home and found that there had been a search warrant at the house and they found that the reason this all happened was because I was having a party and, and even if we weren't drinking, although some of the kids apparently had come there afterwards, they had been drinking, but that doesn't matter. But, but this all happened because I refused to answer the door when the police banged on it. I... I wouldn't be having any more parties. I guarantee you that. 414-799-1620. Jeff in Pewaukee. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. You know, I, I look at this really simple. You create so many new problems when a police officer confronts you and says, I would like you to step out to your car. I would like you to take your hands out of your pocket. I want you to turn around. And, and then pe- this whole culture of I don't have to and I can run and I'm not responsible for this consequences. I agree with you 100%. This never would have escalated to this point, you know, had they said, yeah, how did they know, first of all, what the police officers right. wanted to say? Maybe the police officers were there to tell them that 
someone's missing or someone that died or something, you know, they're not always there to arrest you. And or we're looking for a young lady and, and, and she, right. we were told she might be here. She's in grave danger. Can we just see who's here? Right. So you're assuming that you know what they're doing right. and, and you don't have to cooperate. Well, right. I, I mean, just, if, if just the police wrong. came to your door, Jeff, you know, and knocked yep. on your door, you're going to answer in. the door and find out what Come they want. In. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, are you still there? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is this, is that if I were pulled over and someone said, we want to check your trunk. Have at it because I have nothing in my truck. Right. Yeah. So maybe I'm helping them solve a problem that, you know, when, when police officers get a call and they say, well, you know, there's a white car uh, suspected of speeding and driving recklessly. If I drive a white car and you want to you want to pull me over and see if it's me, maybe see if I'm drunk, go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess. have nothing to hide. Right. I mean, thanks to Con. I mean, I, again, I, I just go back and, and I, I'm, I'm looking at, at this fact in this. And as it turns out, I mean, these kids weren't involved. They weren't doing anything wrong. But I, I mean, I don't know if this is this big game we're going to play. I mean, let's see if we can jerk around the Mequon police. And and I mean, all right, maybe the argument is, well, they have they don't have enough time stuff to do on their shows. I've got I've got a text here. It's only an alleged drinking party. Why couldn't the police just let it go? OK, but let's let's review the bidding for a minute here and, and let's. Let's assume that, for the sake of argument, that this, okay, this turned out to not be a drinking party, okay? But let's assume it was. And let's assume, for the sake of argument, that you've got, you know, these eight football players and these four other people, and they are drinking. Now, they weren't, but the police don't know that. So let's say that one or two of them gets boozed up, and somebody, again, leaving the party, gets behind the wheel of a car and drives that car into a tree, kills themselves, and then it turns out that, oh, the police had information that this was a drinking party and they decided to do nothing. C- can you imagine the stories then? Or the person who gets boozed up, drives away, and then, you know, hits and kills somebody when they run through an intersection. Can you imagine the stories? And then it turns out that the police had information, or at least a tip, that said there was a drinking party there and they did absolutely nothing. I mean, again, it- it's you-, you can't just, in my opinion... You can't just let something like this go. And again, I'll, I'll let the lawsuit work its way through federal court, and they're alleging you know, constitutional violations and things like that. But to me, this is a much simpler thing. None of this happens if you just answer the door, cooperate with the police, and then everybody goes on their way, and there's no problem. Is that too much to ask? 228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 237, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, I have to admit, this is very cool. I I, I was a fan of building the new five-serve forum. I, I think ultimately, we're, we're going to ultimately judge whether it was worth the $250, $250 million in taxpayer money by by what happens in that surrounding area. You know, is that is it going to spur the type of growth that I think that, that people are hoping for? And I think the preliminary results are, yeah, and I, I candidly believe, you know, this is going to be a great shot in the arm for the city of Milwaukee, and I think it's going to lead to some development beyond just cannibalizing, you know, businesses, people who used to go to 3rd Street, now they're they're coming down to that the whole area to the north of where the arena is. I, I actually think you're, you're going to see more and more people going down there, and, and I'll either be right or wrong, and we'll, we'll know in five or ten years. One of the immediate effects, though, is all the different concerts that are coming into Fiserv Forum. And um, as of now, they've got they've got 28 concerts which have either occurred 
or been announced for the arena's first 12 months. I mean, 28 concerts. And, I mean, big-name entertainers. You've got Elton John, who's coming February 19th. That show's sold out. The reason I, I really uh, attack, uh, notice this is you've got Kiss. Gru, were you a Kiss fan? A little bit of a Kiss fan. My brother, my, my brother, sorry to out you, Scott. My brother was a huge Kiss fan. That was, I, you know, kind of a little bit after my time. But, I, but I, I've actually grown to appreciate Kiss more over the years, but Kiss, they're doing their farewell tour, and um, they're they're going to be performing at the Pfizer Forum. But this is one of the shows that just got announced. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. I am a huge Bob Seger fan, and they're doing a, a farewell tour as well. And they've just announced that they're going to be at the Pfizer Forum on, on January twenty fourth, which is just a couple days after you know. Um, so they're going to be there on January on January twenty fourth. So um, that's very cool as well. But um, you know, Bob Seger hasn't been in Milwaukee for they say twelve years or so. So it's it's just great. I mean that that's one of the immediate effects that you're seeing is that Milwaukee is becoming a a major league stop. On the indoor concert tour, now during Summerfest and things like that, we always got the big shows. But the Pfizer Forum is clearly attracting uh, just a great level of entertainment. And that's what I'm kind of making a note for because uh, Bob, I don't go to as many concerts as I used to, but Bob Seeger, I would love to see Bob Seeger. All right. I was talking to Melissa about this just a minute ago. Uh, my, my high school, I was a child of the 70s. My high school had the good sense to not allow senior quotations because, again, given the time I graduated from high school, God knows what anybody would have said. that The big scandal in my high school with the yearbook is they, they used to take class pictures. At, the seniors, you know, would be in there, but they also took, like, class pictures, and it became this cottage industry where people would sneak into other classes' pictures. And so, you know, you this wasn't your home. This wasn't your homeroom class, but you'd be in there nonetheless. And so what... What they did one year to deal with this is they blacked out all the people that didn't belong. Honest to God, I think it's my junior year. It's hysterical because, like, you'll look at the the homeroom photo, and there'll be all these bodies. It's like somebody took a magic marker to them, and and they're they're blacked out. I mean, it's like the shadow has come and has participated. It looks looks just dumb, but it's what they did for all the people that kind of uh, again, uh, decided that they were going to photobomb. This was photobombing before there was photobombing, but it, that that was the big controversy. But we did not have, we did not have quotations, senior quotations. Many many high schools do, and you will remember perhaps the controversy out at New Berlin West High School last year, where they give the seniors the chance to do a quotation, and one kid. Uh, thinking, I presume he's thinking that he's going to be clever. His senior quotation says, there will always be one true final solution. And, and what this is, is, you know, this is a, this is a, the final solution. This is a reference to Nazi Germany. And that's what the, that's what the history is. It was the name of the Nazi plan to exterminate Eastern European Jews in the early 1940s. That's, that's it. So there will always be one true final solution. That's a reference to that. And nobody that reviewed it, I, I guess adults or students, picked up on, on what that was. Now, I, I don't know if the kid who put that in there is a true anti-Semite 
or whether he just thought he was being clever. And I'm putting that clever in air quotes, but he puts that in there. And then so what happens is it creates this huge problem. It goes through New Berlin. Somebody points this out that you've got this anti-Semitic reference that's in here. What are you going to do? And what they end up doing is they halt distribution of the remaining yearbooks. They have to go. um, They collect the ones that they had. They provide cover up stickers. It's just a mess. It's just it's a mess because somebody missed this. So their initial response to this is they decide, okay, we're, we're not going to allow any of these senior quotations anymore because the one kid did this, we're not going to allow it to happen. So that was the policy going into this year. No senior quotations. Well, you have a number of the seniors at New Berlin West who are unhappy about that. They're saying, wait a second, it's not fair to not let us do this. We We've been wanting to do this. You know, we've been planning what ours are. And just because you got some bozo who did this and got away with it last year, it's not right to say that we can't do it. Right? I want to open up the phone lines. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So you have this kid who does this last year, causes a huge amount of embarrassment and causes a huge amount of extra work because of what his quotation was and the fact that nobody caught it, nobody did anything about it. Is that now a justification for saying we're doing away with the practice of senior quotes? Or is there another way to deal with this? Now, there's no right to, you know, have a senior quote in a high school yearbook. But what should the school do here? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So New Berlin West, the original response was, we have this idiot kid who last year makes this anti-Semitic historical reference in his yearbook quotations, and we didn't catch it. And it's caused this huge amount of embarrassment. We had to recall the yearbooks. We had to get these stickers that cover it up. So their initial response was, all right, we're going to do away with the, these yearbook quotations. Now, where do I come down on this? Well, I, I think I don't think a high school has any obligation when they're putting out the yearbook to, to guarantee that the seniors are going to get a, a quote page. I mean, it's I don't there, there, there's no obligation to do that. Right. But but if you're going to do it, and it's a tradition, and it's something that, that people have enjoyed and they look forward to, etc., I don't think you do away with that merely because you had one idiot who did something a, a year ago. Now, rather than doing away with the senior quotations, I think it's – obviously, I think it's it's fair to tell everybody, hey, look, there's going to be added scrutiny to this stuff because you all remember what happened last year – and we're going to have some extra review, extra review. And by the way, if we catch people that are trying to be, they, they think they're being clever or they're promoting hate speech or whatever, you know, th- there's going to be some consequences. So think about what it is that you want to say. But, you know, we're going to have that added review. And unfortunately, maybe it makes for a little more work. But I always argue against what I call legislating to the lowest common denominator because you have one person out of 300 or 3,000 who misbehaves. That, to me, doesn't mean that all the other 299 or 2,999 people 
have to lose their right to do something all because one person, you know, acted like an idiot or an anti-Semite or, or whatever. What you do is you address that, that person and you try to take steps maybe to monitor things and, and make sure something like that doesn't happen again. But you know what? It might happen again. Th- despite their best efforts, it might happen again and you end up dealing with it. But if, if this is a tradition and it's something that 99% of the people over the last X number of years have done and there hasn't been a problem, I, I think you, you keep it. And my understanding is that New Berlin West after hearing from some of the students and thinking about this, that that's what they've decided to do. We'll let this go. Now, ultimately, if this becomes a problem, if because of this you get a lot of copycats and next year you get, uh, this year, for example, you get 10% of the student population who's trying to sneak in inappropriate quotes, which are either hate speech or offensive or whatever, well, okay, then maybe you have to reassess the whole overall thing. But I, I just think you have to resist the knee-jerk reaction because somebody did something stupid. That means that nobody gets to do you know th- this activity in the first place. Hey, before the show ends, I, I want to comment on-, on one other local story, and this one actually involves my alma mater, Nicolay High School. Uh, Nicolay High School, it would have been yesterday, multiple students at Nicolay High School received a text message that claimed to be sent from the Glendale Police Department. The message uh, cited a fake CNN report stating that Glendale and Whitefish Bay school districts would be closed on Friday due to a bomb, due to a bomb threat. Um, actually, here's here's what the note is. It was sent by the superintendent. Dear parents, guardians, and Nicolay community, I'm writing this morning to inform you of a recent incident that has come to our attention. At this time, law enforcement has determined that there is no credible safety threat. This morning, that would be yesterday, multiple Nicolay students reported receiving a text message claiming to be from the Glendale Police Department citing a CNN report about a school closure at Glendale and Whitefish Bay School Districts on Friday due to a bomb threat. Students immediately reported these messages to the school staff. In accordance with school policy, the Glendale School Resource Officer was notified. Officers responded to the school to investigate. Officers determined that the link included within the message led to a pornographic image and represented no credible theft threat. The police department, along with the district administration, here's where it gets interesting, traced the message back to a Nicolay student in less than an hour and have determined again that the threat was not credible. The Glendale Police Department is conducting an investigation into this incident and school administration will take appropriate action in accordance with school disciplinary policy. Okay, so what they said is, we're aware of this, we know this thing went out, we're not closing school. And I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm all in favor of that. I think they handled this exactly correctly. And, and I also, I think it's a, it's fine for the school to do whatever the school is going to do with regard to discipline. But, but here's where I think it gets really interesting. It is against the law to do what it appears that this student did. This happens with alarming frequency. And in Wisconsin, a couple of years ago, you know, they passed, they passed a law that was specifically addressed at situations, you know, like this. It's a terror threat law. And the problem is that, you know, even though this law is on the books, it rarely gets enforced. Um, you know, one of the things is you, you have to prove that the defendant intended to cause panic or force a school to close. 
Well, okay, to me, this is a no-brainer. Hey, you know, this is the report. There's this bomb that's there. The schools are closed. All right, in addition, the real problem is you, you have these juveniles who do this, and inevitably when they get caught, they always say, well, you know, we were just kind of kidding around. We, we really weren't going to plant a bomb. This wasn't a credible thing. All right, well, it doesn't matter because the police have to respond. There is a cost to this. But what happens too often is that the authorities, they, they don't want to go after the kids that are doing this because they don't want to say, well, gee, you know, if we prosecute them, this is going to end up on their record, and then it might be difficult for them to get into college or get a job or whatever, to which my response is, and? I mean, seriously, if you want this stuff to stop, what you have to do is you have to have firm policies that say when people do this, they're going to be prosecuted and held accountable. And I'm not talking about a two-day suspension from school. That does absolutely nothing. One of, we know, we all know that you don't fool around at airports nowadays when you're going through that security line. You don't joke about having something in your briefcase. You don't joke about, you know, carrying a gun. You don't do that because it's not funny. And if you do, there's going to be consequences. Well, I think you need to have the same approach when it comes to people who, again, play around on the Internet. And I don't care if it's a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old in Glendale, Wisconsin, or a 35-year-old or whatever. When you make threats, whether they're bomb threats or threats or you say things or you post things which are intended to cause unease, disrupt the schools, and or close down the schools, when you do it, you need to be held accountable. And if it messes up your chance to get into college, too bad, so sad. Sometimes you have to make examples of people so other people learn. Just saying. What will happen to this kid? Well, my guess is nothing, but we'll see. It's 2.54. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.